The title for today is Millennial Craziness Simplified. And we'll see what we can do about that. But I need to make a point first off because I have had somebody essentially come up to me and try to measure my faith by a position uh, on how the end times happen. If you don't believe it right and all those things, that you're either not right in faith or not right politically or you're not something. And I want to make this point very clear. And of course, it's going to get there. I'm going to outline the three historic positions just a little bit so you, you can find your way around in the argument. But this is the one thing that I need you to understand more than anything else, okay? Nowhere in the Bible does it give you a yardstick by which you get to go measure somebody else's faith. Ever. It gives you a yardstick where you can go, oh, my faith is a little short today but it doesn't give you one that you get to go do that. That, by the way, people have said I've not brought it out, is what we call a bony finger of indignation. And you're not supposed to point at people and go, you, 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 you. Besides that, when you do that, how many fingers are pointing at you? Yeah, you're doing more self-accusing. So just let's remember, as we go in there, that this is that spot where lots of people have had their faith measured by different denominations. Well, if you don't believe this right. And let's not forget this one simple thing. When they asked Jesus about when the kingdom was coming, he said, it's none of your business. You keep to your business. Even I don't know that. The Father's in charge. Okay? So here we go. We've been working away. Let's read some Revelation 20. I know some of you are just stunningly excited. I've been doing this thing forever, right? No, I haven't. It, I actually started after Easter. It's not been forever. Here we go. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven and holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain, and he seized the dragon. And you're going, what's the dragon? But he's not going to let you guess. He's going to explain it. That ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, right? There's no confusion here. Who's the the dragon? Satan. Bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. And then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those whom the authority to judge was committed. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony or had lost their lives as martyrs for the testimony of Jesus and the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beasts or its image and had not received the mark on their forehead or their hands, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now, I've read... Four verses and thousand years has been mentioned four times. Might be kind of important to what's going on here. They call that a millennium. That's what we're saying. The rest of the dead did not come to life until after the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. Need to 
need to take just a moment and talk to you about the first resurrection and the second death. What's the first death? Do you know what the first death is? We picture it in our baptism, right? When somebody baptizes us and they they take us down and says, buried with Christ, raised with Christ. Do you know what that is? That's the first death, or in this case, the death to self or sin. You are dying to sin and being raised in the first resurrection, which Jesus made possible at the cross. And I've made this point a couple of times. You don't get to do this. You don't get your bony finger of indignation out when you're kneeling at the base of the cross because you're actually at the base of the cross because you know you need help. That's the thing about coming to Jesus and measuring other people's faith. And when you pay attention to your relationship with him and he says, go do this, you don't have to pay attention to their relationship with him. He's doing that. And he's in charge of it. And I love this moment. Okay, are you ready? If Who converts people to Jesus? Jesus. So if Jesus is the one that does the conversion, can you do the conversion? So if you can't do it, can you be in charge of it? No. Okay, good, good. Jesus is in charge. We like that position for Jesus. He's in charge. He's going to do it right, and he's not going to leave it to me who wouldn't do it right because I would mess it up. And you can just say that to yourself. He didn't leave it to me. I would mess it up. That's a good thing, isn't it? Just, let's just... So the one who wouldn't mess it up is in charge. How cool is that? <laughs> okay, so here we are. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Remember, that's us with faith in Christ, with the Spirit of God put in us. The second death doesn't have any power over us. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out and deceive the nations that are the four corners of the earth, right? You know we live on a globe that doesn't actually have four corners like a map, right? You know that. So that's everything. Just, you know, this is my my little math geek moment, you know, that, that when you take a circle and you make it, it doesn't actually make a square, or a rectangle. Gog and Magog to gather them for battle. But, but I'm confused by this for a second. Didn't we just read chapter 19 and the big battle was supposed to happen in chapter 19 and now there's a big battle? What happened in the big battle in chapter 19 two weeks ago when we talked about it? Jesus showed up and said, no, it's over. And so when the angel come down and showed all this stuff, we're not seeing what's happening next. We're seeing what John is seeing next. It's kind of like a slideshow, and some of the slides are a little out of order. It's like if, if our friends that went to Israel the other day started out at the dig and then talked about the plane flight from Europe, from, from New York to Israel. That's kind of what's going on. Things are not in as happened. Otherwise, this book would have said, and then it happened, and then it happened, and then it happened. But what it says is, and then I saw. It's not the same thing. 
I know it's a little nicety, it's a little trick of language, but, but you know, when we read poetry, we don't go crazy and think that everything's exactly literal, do we? We think, those are beautiful pictures. My faith isn't actually an anchor made out of metal that I throw in the lake to hold me still. Poetry. Love it. Okay, so here it is. To gather them for battle, and their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched and surrounded the, from, on it, from every plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, but fire came out of heaven and consumed them. So here we have another picture of the last battle that is essentially over before it happens. I really like that about this, that, that if we continue to fight against God, we don't actually have tools that do damage to him. And so what makes you think the bigger tool is going to be better? I mean, I like bigger tools. Don't get me wrong. I mean, when I want bolt cutters, like I bought yesterday, I want bolt cutters, right? I don't want, to, I don't want little bolt cutters because they make me work too hard. I want, the, I, want the bolt. I want a bigger tool, but it doesn't work. Anyway, they consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, and the beast and the false prophet, right? The beast of the air, and the beast of the sea, and the beast of the land are thrown, and they will be tormented day and night forever. Okay. Before we go any further, we're going to talk about the millennial and the traditional views. I want to set up, next slide, please. Some simple starting observations. Okay, here we are. The millennium, or the thousand years, starts when Satan is thrown down. And always, before, in every scenario I'm going to show you today, Satan is thrown down before Jesus rides to final victory. That makes perfect sense, doesn't it? But what happens in this thing is where they decide where uh, Satan is thrown down and all that stuff. And so that's the main difference of them. Second... The rest of the New Testament suggests this one thing. Jesus' reign starts on Christmas Eve. Not, not Christmas Eve 2018. Christmas Eve zero. The first one. Do you understand what I mean? The rest of the New Testament suggests that Jesus was born for this. Matter of fact, he actually tells Pilate this. For this is why I was born to rule and reign. Satan was bound when Jesus and the Gospels say he was bound. Okay? Mark 1.15. Are you ready? Jesus comes out of the desert, and he, sa- and he starts preaching the Gospel. He says, now I'm going to preach the Gospel. Do you know why? They, they use this Greek term, euangelion, which we think is a church term, means the evangelism of the gospel. But it's not a church term. It's a political term that means the new kingdom starts today. This is the news. He's the messenger of the new kingdom. And in the ancient world, when a new kingdom started doing it, they started the years over. They did. They they mint coins of the first year of the reign of every king, and the year would be zero or one. It's year one. That's why actually... The, take, the, the checking the dates in the ancient world is so difficult. If every king starts their, their reign in year one, how do you keep track? 
right? The only way you do that is if other kingdoms are mentioned in their rule books and things like that. And so in this year, this one, and they go, okay, how do we do this? But that's what it is. So when Jesus sends out, I got to go back to this first thing, right? Um, Satan is thrown down. When Jesus sends the 72 out, the disciples, and they do, what do they do? They, they heal people and they, and they kick devil, uh, demons out of people. And Jesus says, I saw Satan bound and fall from heaven. He didn't say, I'm going to see Jesus be bound and fall from heaven. He's already bound right then. Jesus has already sort of declared it. Then we go to this verse here. Are you ready? The rain. So if you want to know the verses, here's the verse of Jesus saying to Pilate, for this I was born. That's in John 18, 37. In Mark 5, Mark 1, 15, Jesus says, he declares that G- Satan has been bound. And from that moment on, he goes around talking about what do you do when you go into the house of a strong man? First, you have to bind the strong man before you can do anything. He's already bound Satan. That's why he has the power to do this. This is the coolest thing, okay? So let me ask you this question. Throughout the rest of that time, Jesus starts drawing us to himself. Do you know why he can do that? This is from one of the commentaries I was reading. He can draw all people to himself because the one who had all people in his grip is losing his grip. Jesus has started to wrestle us out of the grip of Satan all the way back at the temptations. And after that, Jesus is pretty much free to do whatever he wants. Jesus is already reigning. I just want you to remember this thing, okay? We're not waiting for Jesus' enthronement period. That's already darn been happening. And if you wonder, you can turn back 16 chapters in the book we're in, and it says, I saw a door opened in heaven, and there was a throne, and on the throne was a lamb with seven eyes and seven horns, right? But not a misshapen one, but a lamb with perfect vision and perfect power. Jesus is already reigning. Now, I know that part of your life sort of tells you that Jesus isn't in charge and it doesn't feel right and things got to be better than this. don't, Don't some of you have that part of your life where you're going, it doesn't feel like Jesus is in charge. Things are not as they seem. Jesus is in charge whether or not you perceive it. He's still in charge. That's something to remember, okay? Always, always, always focus on him. No other name is given under heaven by which we might be saved. Acts 4.12. That's what that is. Next slide, Carmen. This is historic premillennialism simplified. Okay, this is as simple as I get it. I want to make sure that you know that this is not to be confused with the left behind books. Historic premillennialism is quite a bit older than that. But here it is. It goes like this. It starts on this green side. Historic premillennialism and postmillennialism have the same exact five boxes. Okay, they start with the age of promise, which is creation, fall, 
Then the promise of Jesus is given. All the saying, the purple one I have is Advent, Jesus' birth, his life, Jesus' life. The next one is the church age, which is Acts to the second coming. That's what they view this thing as, okay? Satan in historic premillennialism is unbound until this purple line right here where Jesus returns and binds him. That's what they say. Then you have a thousand-year reign, and then the red line, Satan is released and defeated. Released so that he can be defeated. Released so that he can, right? And then the, this nice little blue box over here, a new heaven and a new earth. This is historic premillennialism. Let me give you the next slide, and I want to, these five, these four things are really important to remember about them, okay? It was developed by people that love the Bible. Okay? Every view I'm going to show you today is that. As a matter of fact, I want to read you something out of another commentary. And this is something as we go through this I want you to remember. Each of the three options you're going to see today has been developed by godly students of the Bible, by people who sincerely want to understand God's word and who want to submit their lives to it. I want you to remember that. Even if you disagree with them, they were sincere Bible students. They weren't making this up as they go along. They had some reasons for it, okay? Therefore, in choosing between the three options, we are not choosing between conservative and liberal. We're not. We are not choosing between those who believe in the divine inspiration of the Bible and those who do not. We're not. Everybody that believed everything I'm showing you today was a student of the Bible and loved it, okay? Unfortunately, the problem for us is that in 1948, Israel came back into being and people went a little crazy about end times. And so a lot of stuff has changed, okay? Second, the three options see something in Revelation to which others are blind. This one has some focus. Historic premillennialism says something and they pay really good attention to something that the other options don't do as good a job on which is kind of like denominations in some ways. Some of the denominations, you know, they pay really good attention to some stuff that we don't do very well, but we do some stuff very well that they don't do very well. It's kind of the same thing. That's kind of human. And they're also blind to what the others choose to not pay attention to. <laughs> okay. Second, why am I saying that this is not to be confused with modern pre-tribulation theology and post-tribulation and mid-tribulation because I'm going to say this really clearly, okay? Because in order to make those work, you have to have a double super secret second second coming that nobody else knows about. <laughs> and it might happen, I don't know, but I have no insight into it. It's extra biblical. And you know what extra biblical means? Somebody added something. And so I don't have an opinion on it. I have no information other than what they say. And so that's where I'm going to leave that, okay? I'm trying to listen to what the Bible has to say, and I have enough struggle not adding my own garbage in. And the last end times, remember how I started this. Jesus said when they asked him about it, he goes, yeah, I don't know anything about that. God's got it. You leave that alone. So, but we end up in an argument, so we have to be informed, okay? Third, 
the adherents of premillennialism tend to pay really close attention to God's active power in the world. Woohoo! God is active and alive in the world. But because historic premillennialists tend to think the world's going to hell in a handbasket, they need God to come in and interrupt, and they sort of downplay the role of the church in, in, in gospelizing the world. So those two things, right? They, they do one part good, and they don't do the other very, very good. And, you know, that's life. I do that. Okay, what else do I got? Next one, post-millennialism. Post, next slide. Post, exactly like the other one, except this. They have divorced the binding of Satan from the return of Jesus. Now, I don't know that they have to be connected. I see reasons for both. I could be argued. No, I actually can't be argued. This one has fallen into quite a bit of disfavor over the last hundred years. It's okay. Lots of things have come and gone in the Christian world. It's quite old. It's the second oldest of the one. But anyway, Satan is bound. But what happens in the thousand-year reign? The main difference between this and premillennialism is is that the church brings to fruition the kingdom of God before Jesus here, and there's a thousand years of no trouble. And the reason this one has kind of fallen into disfavor is because it fell into disfavor with all of humanism, which said, look, we're going we're gonna to create a very special world. And it's going to, right, utopianism has kind of gone out of favor. Why? Well, as H.G. Wells in Time Machine says, is you're going to have a utopia, but there's going to be these little critters on the side that every so often come and get you. <laughs> Your utopia has a flaw because it can't be done in human power, okay? So, but those are the main things, okay? Do you see what I'm saying? Do you see that it's, those, those two are exactly the same? Let's go to the next slide. These are the things I want you to remember. See this first point? This was developed by sincere students of the Bible who love it. <laughs> Just like the other one. It's the second oldest viewpoint. In some ways, though, the Essenes were doing something similar to this. The Essenes were a group of people that we know as Qumran community, Dead Sea Scrolls, right? But John the Baptist is thought to be come out of a group like this that's sort of like this. But the Essenes had an opinion, and the opinion was is that Israel is flawed and gone bad and tainted and if we just come out from among them and keep our little compound and we're really pure for a long time then god will have to come back is god a pop machine you just put quarters in no he's not okay so that doesn't work for them that didn't work this has that sort of feeling to it it isn't that but it feels that way okay here it is the adherence of post-millennialism millennialism tend to pay really close attention to the church's power in the world. That's a good thing. Woohoo! Yes, we can do stuff, right? We can fight and work for justice and on and on. But in the fighting for justice, we need to not forget that God's in charge and it's his power too. So, so premillennial and postmillennialism kind of one kind of holds on to one of those truths and let goes of the other one, not not because it's in their theology, but it's in their practice. 
So the adherents need to pay a little better attention to the primacy of the power of God. But the premillennialists need to pay a little more attention to the witness of the church in the world. Do you see? Exactly the same. Okay, next slide. Here's another one. Amillennialism. Greek is a funky language, okay? If you put an A in front of a word, it means that word isn't true. Amillennialist. And what they do is this. Look, we're missing one of the bubbles because amillennialists tend to believe that the church age is the thousand-year reign of Christ. That Satan was bound when Jesus says it. So in some ways, they do a really good job of exegesis. Exegesis is a, is a Greek word that means I'm reading out of the text. Isogesis is when I have an opinion and I read it into the text. Okay, So in some ways, they do that. That was bound. Satan, how do you explain then, how does this make sense in all millennialism, that we live in a world and we have stuff going up bad all the time? Well, Satan's bound in this viewpoint, but we still have the beast of the sea and the beast of the air who act on his behalf. But Jesus can draw us to himself because the grip of Satan has been broken. That's what all millennialism says. So in some ways, I, I just want you to know, it sounds right there like I completely agree with this. I want you to understand, I have no idea. And the beauty of this is this. If I'm an all millennialist and God is a post-millennialist, you know what's going to happen? It's going to go the other way. And it's okay with me. Is it okay with you if God does it the right way? instead of your way. So, so remember, we don't get to measure other people's faith by this. These people were smart. I've had arguments with all... Anyway, so we get back to this thing, the one thing here that Jesus returns, Satan is briefly released and defeated, and the beast and the, are, are already in the lake of fire. So it just... All of them do this one thing. Okay, next slide. This is where I want you to understand, okay? All of these agree on one thing. Next slide, please. I, did, I think I did that other one, didn't I? No, I didn't. I'm sorry, Carmen. That's my bad. So, developed by godly students. This one's the old one, by the way. Did you know that? This is Augustinian. This is all the church fathers were, were all millennialists. You didn't know that. It's okay. It's all good. They could be wrong too. They also thought that if your beard was as long as possible, you were godly. You know, they had some things. But, but on the other hand, you know, knife technology wasn't quite as good. And shaving was hard on you. And so, of course, if you kept a long beard, that would be good. <laughs> right? There's almost always a cultural force behind something. <laughs> Here we go. The adherents of millennialism try to pay really close attention to the scripture, exegesis. There's that Greek word about reading out of the text. They do a good job of that, and they remember, remember this, that we've been dealing with the book of Revelation in such a way that it was symbolic. All these numbers are symbolic, right? On the throne is a lamb with seven eyes and seven horns. Not a misfigured lamb, 
but good eyesight. So it's symbolic. We don't then get to, in this, they pay really good attention to this. They don't then go, okay, well, he's saying 1,000 years, it's not 999, right? So suddenly it becomes a statistic when all the other numbers in the book, right? So we need some, the amillennials pay really good attention to that and try to use a consistent form of understanding, okay? What's the problem with amillennialism? Well, the adherents tend to forget that there is a reality behind the symbology, Did you know that Jesus is coming back? We are his bride. And if we're not ready, right, there is a reality here being symbolized. And we need to pay attention. All millennials tend to think, well, you know, that's somewhere out there. No, it's not really. Pretty soon we just forget about it if we're an all millennials. Strengths and weaknesses. None of these are airtight. None of them are, are, are... are a test of faith, that, that if you believe this one, you don't have faith, and if you don't believe that one, you don't have faith, and none of them are that, okay? Here's where they all agree. Next slide. There is a new heaven and a new earth. Woohoo! Aren't you happy about that? You, we've made kind of a mess of this one. I'm glad there's going to be a new one. The future is not up for grabs. Jesus is in control. Do you want to make millennialism kind of go away and be really simplified? You remember these things. Jesus is in control, and it's going to be his way, and we're really happy it's going to be done his way, and, and, and he hasn't asked my opinion yet. <laughs> Number three, the future is not in our hands. Why hasn't he asked, an, asked our opinion? Because we do it wrong, just like everything else, just like the garden. You had one rule. You had one thing. <laughs> you just said one thing. We messed that up. Okay, next slide. Here where I think they ought to agree. I think they all ought to agree that the thousand years is a symbol. I think the exegesis of all millennialism is right, that the numbers are symbolic and all these things. I, I think that that's not a statistic how many horns the lamb has. Okay, so we do that. Jesus is not going to become king. They all ought to agree on this. He is king. It's not going to happen. It has happened. Is that all right with you? Can we, can, we, can we just go, oh, I like that one. Okay, how about this one? The church is not a helpless victim. Uh-oh, this is getting into the close-at-hand thing. See, we're going to have to actually live our life. If Jesus reigns in us, we have actual power to affect change. Now, we might not have actual political power, but have you ever forgiven somebody and seen their life changed? You have actual power. That's incredible. That's a change. The gospel changed everything. Jesus changed everything. You realize that sailors in a storm don't actually think that throwing a sailor overboard will stop the storm anymore like they did in Jonah, right? Well, you've been bad to your God. We're going to throw you. Right. So what changed? Jesus. Jesus came and changed. Right. The the amount of understanding that our world has because Jesus has been here, even if they haven't had exposure to the Bible, something, somebody, for those that have been touched, Jesus has changed. The gospel changes things. And 
it's still changing things. It's still changing me. I'm not done yet. That's pretty cool. I like that. And we ought to do this. There's a little sign in the hallway, right? Here we may agree or disagree, but always in a spirit of love in the hallway. Here, let's agree to disagree agreeably. Let's not fight over this stuff. Besides that, I, I started the sermon this way. When Jesus was asked about this stuff, do you know what he said? It's none of your darn business. I don't even know that stuff. God knows that stuff. You pay attention to this. So here's what I'm going to say. This is how, last slide, here's the slide. Here's my last thoughts. Here's how we simplify this mumbo-jumbo, okay? These are these five things, okay? The first one is, you keep your eyes on Jesus. If you're in a boat in a storm and Jesus is walking by and you see him and say, if it's really you, you tell me to come out on the water. And he says, come out on the water. You do that and you walk. I don't think Peter gets very much credit for this. You know, he actually did walk on the water. But then he saw it and he went, ah, like this. And Jesus says, why'd you doubt me? You keep your eyes on him. If, you, if Jesus had kept his eyes up here instead of down here on the trouble, I think he probably would have made it. You keep your eyes fixed on this Jesus guy. Okay, number two. Let's worry about the stuff we can control. It's not really all that much. Which of you can add a single day to your life by worrying? That's Jesus' words, right? Actually, from what I can tell, worry pretty much stops people from living days, and they lose days to worry. The first one was keep your eyes. Keep your thoughts on Jesus. Let him renew and transform your thoughts by by thinking about what he's done, by paying attention to what he's done, by sort of mulling it over. Now, some of you might say that I overcook everything or that I just let it percolate through me. But you know what we do is this, is we set our hearts and our minds and our thoughts on Jesus. But this is our thought life. We're going to think about Jesus. I had a young man who was really struggling with something the other day, and all he could tell me was what was going wrong with his life. And I said, wait a minute. How about you tell me three things that have happened that were good? And it took him 40 minutes to come up with three, which one of them happened to be his wife who was a blessing to him. And I said, how about you start each day with those three instead of the things going wrong? Let your mind be renewed. Okay, here's this other one. Oh, we've got this. I just did this, right? Here we can agree or disagree. You and I might have completely different positions. It's okay. He hasn't asked my opinion. He hasn't asked your opinion. We can all have unwanted extra opinions on stuff. I've got them all the time. I have opinions on how my neighbors ought to park their car too. They haven't asked me. It's okay. I feel free not to share. <laughs> I'm just being honest, right? <laughs> this is the way it is. I've, all, I've always got an opinion. doesn't make it a good one. Keep your heart fixed on Jesus. I really, I, I need to stop here and do this. I need to just two things. If you're married to somebody and they're the one and you start and you forget and you don't set your heart on them as the one and you find somebody else and you start to set your heart on them as the one, your marriage is going to go to, it's going to go wrong. You keep your heart and your mind and your eyes on the one. 
the only name given under heaven by which you might be saved is Jesus. And it doesn't come with a data pack. Well, you can be saved by Jesus if you understand, if you're a historic premillennialist. It doesn't say that. Aren't you glad? It's Jesus. Keep your eyes and your heart there. You focus on him. Keep your eyes on the one who has bound the evil one. Keep your eyes on the one who causes us to come to life. Keep your eyes on the one who reigns over all authority and calls us to join him. Keep your eyes on the one who's one day going to release the evil one and dispatch him really quickly. That's kind of cool. Who will then finally destroy the enemy and all his cohorts. You keep your eyes on him. Keep your eyes on the one who is now, even now, bringing the whole of a new creation into life and calling us his bride. I'm not making up that imagery. Look, he's in love with us. He's given us every opportunity to stay in love with him. Let's stay in love. Keep your eyes, your head, your heart focused on this Jesus dude. He's the one. I am so done. You're all thanking God that Mr. Long-Winded is gone. Done. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for helping me wade into murky waters. Thank you for helping me lift your name up. Let us do that as your people. Now when we have discussions, we can honor you by loving each other, even when we disagree. In your precious name, amen.